You are listening to the Antler and Featherco Podcast. All right. Hey, guys, what's going on? Welcome back to the Antler and Featherco Podcast, the podcast for new and adult onset hunters. My name is Vince, and guys, we are just, I like to say, just over a month away. You can say just under two months, but I feel like it feels closer when we say just over a month um, from, from a lot of our deer seasons. So I hope you guys are getting out. I hope you're scouting, preparing, practicing, doing everything that I talk about, um, especially you new guys to get yourselves ready to go for this season. If you haven't started scouting yet because you don't know where to start, you don't know what to look for, then today's episode is for you. Today, we're going to deep dive into preseason e-scouting, kind of the things that you could be looking for right now in the woods that you can transition into the season. And then we're going to also talk about once you have started the season, how to break down public land. Some of us have set spots that we know that we want to go to and some of us are going to go to land for the first time so we want to talk about how to pick that piece apart how to maximize your time in the woods by knowing what to look for before you go in and to put together a plan if you guys listened last week we talked with bill from spartan forge and kind of talked about how you can utilize spartan forge or other mapping apps to get yourself started in terms of hey this looks like a good spot to go check out things like that So this is going to be more geared towards uh, boots on the ground. Once you're in there in public land, how to find sign and how to find deer so that you can get a tag put on a deer. So I don't want to waste a ton of time talking on an intro. I'm really excited for uh, our guest today, DIY sportsman, Garrett Prawl. Garrett, how are you doing today, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Dude, I appreciate it. Aside from being a great hunter, you guys, Garrett has put out just a ton of information ranging from from testing arrows, testing different gear, um, doing DIY projects, DIY sticks and different hunting gear, as well as how-to videos. So once you get off here, I really recommend you head over there and check his stuff out, um, especially you new guys, because you guys can learn a ton. I was telling Garrett before, when I started a few years back, I learned from three channels. And his was one of the most visited channels in my YouTube list. Um, And I've learned a ton from him. So I'm really excited to have him on. So Garrett, like I told you before, I'm going to say a quick prayer and then we're going to hop right in and uh, get going. So Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to talk to Garrett. I thank you for his time. I thank you for his willingness to come on here. Um, More than anything, I thank you for Jesus and what he did on the cross in our place. Um, he, He paid a debt that we could never pay. And um, because of that, we get to enjoy your world, enjoy your creation. And I just hope that through me, you can reach more and more people to bring them into your kingdom and bring them into creation and to enjoy the woods that you've created. And I just thank you for everything. I want to glorify you through this podcast. And I ask that uh, you would just be over this conversation. And we ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So let's get kicked off. So for starters, what is your preseason looking like right now? What kind of stuff do you place value in before the season starts? So a lot of times you'll hear people say, don't pay too much attention to what you see in the woods before, you know, don't go in the middle of June because whatever you see then is going to be different by the time you actually get out and get hunting. So aside from, well, including e-scouting, what what all goes into your preseason process to scout land um, for the upcoming season? 
Yeah, it does vary a little bit just depending on if it's a place that I'm familiar with or not. If I've been hunting a place for, you know, three, four or five years, then usually in that scenario, I've already got a pretty good idea of how ge deer generally like to use that habitat. And I might have already, you know, known of deer from the prior season that might still be alive. And so some of it is just inventory, but the other part of it is just trying to verify, especially the early season food sources. You know, once I get closer to the rut in that kind of scenario, I would generally know where deer are going to shift to and where they're going to start spending more time in daylight. But from an early season perspective, knowing, hey, these oak trees on this ridge have acorns. They got a lot of them. It's going to be, a, you know, a great early season spot, potentially, depending on when your opener lines up. Um, or there's a lot of browse in this area. Maybe there's agriculture close by. There's beans in a certain field versus corn. That might make a difference just in terms of how those deer are going to, you know, react during the early months before late October, November hits. So that's primarily what I'm looking for in that type of a scenario. Now, if it's like an out-of-state trip or a place that I just don't have a lot of familiarity with, then from the deer perspective, I really have no idea what to expect. I don't know what the hunting pressure necessarily is like. And so I usually, in that scenario, try to kind of strike a nice balance between doing a little bit more e-scouting, but then just verifying key things with boots on the ground instead of just trying to go through and grid the whole thing a month before the season. And usually in that scenario, I'm looking for if it's an early season hunt, again, areas where I might expect to find food, see if there's any agriculture around looking at the maps, see if there's anything that looks like it could be oak ridges, or if it's like a marshy type area, oak islands. Sometimes you can look at the tree canopies on aerial photos and be able to tell if it's a, a bigger canopy tree like an oak versus if it's smaller trees that might be more cover based rather than food based. So those are generally the things I would try to look for. And then, you know, again, if I had the time, I would just kind of pop in and check some of those food sources. Usually all the stuff that I'd be looking for is in some close proximity to where I think deer might be bedding. And that's something, again, that ideal case scenario, you're able to check in the spring. I think that's the, usually the easiest time to, to find where those deer are bedding. And it does shift from late summer to early fall. And then, you know, toward the rut, it can shift a little bit again. But trying to stay as close to some of that heavy cover or places where I expect fewer hunters to be, and then looking for those areas on the map and then just kind of verifying the food sources. Uh, more often than not, if I'm not familiar with the area, I'm not going through and, and trying to find and, you know, kick out deer out of the beds. Although that is a strategy that some people do just to see what's there. Um, I feel like if I can verify those early season food sources, some of those transition lines, and also just verify that there's generally deer sign there, right? Is there tracks? Uh, that's a big, a big one, obviously, especially if you go a little bit after a rainfall and just do that quick spot check, that could be a pretty valuable time to, to do that, uh, little bit of boots on the groundwork before the season being this close to when it actually starts. So one thing that, I mean, I even still struggle with, um, from a newer, pers new hunter perspective, when you're talking about deer beds and bedding, what are you looking for? How do you know, you know, this is a bed, this is a bedding area. Um, a lot of times you'll, you'll have people, you know, even when they're e-scouting looking at, oh, this should be where they're bedding or this and that. How do you figure out what a bedding area is or how do you even begin to look for it? What kind of things are you looking for? Not so much on the map because I know that can be really, probably really difficult, but what do you typically find that, that someone who's brand, brand new can look at, the, an, uh, you know, they're walking through the woods and they see 
whatever these signs are, what are those signs that tip off that this is a bedding area that you should kind of pay attention to? Yeah. So I guess the biggest one and probably the most obvious one is if you're, if you're bumping deer out from their beds, then you know, right. That's like the best confirmation. Now, if you find as you're walking through the woods, places where deer had bedded, then you know that deer are at least bedding there at some time, but the, depending on what the surroundings look like, it could be nighttime bedding. It could be daytime bedding. And, and obviously you're more interested in the, the daytime bedding because you want to get closer to that. But if you're walking through the woods and you're generally in areas where they're not going to be really, you know, too close to hunter pressure, we're not going to be like right off of a main hunter access trail, unless there's some kind of a, a dividing thing, like, you know, water that's preventing people from walking across or a really steep bluff or something like that. Then they might bed pretty close to where there is activity so they can monitor it. But otherwise they're going to be looking for places where there's not as much hunting pressure. And oftentimes just for general deer, you'll find it in thicker areas and along the edges of those thicker areas where they meet up and create transition lines with other types of cover. Um, so if you're walking transition lines, just in general, uh, that's usually a way to make sure that you're covering ground efficiently instead of just beelining at, you know, point A to point B across open woods. If you're following that transition line, a lot of times you can find when you're walking, you know, the edge of thick and thin, you can see trails going in and out. And sometimes that can be a good verification too, that if you're seeing that sign of those deer going in and out of the thicker area, there could be deer bedding in there without physically going in and bumping them out to, to check. Uh, the other way to tell is if you had that, uh, you know, that suspicion you could put, you know, cameras or glass, depending on what the woods look like and make that verification too, that those deer are coming in and out somewhat close to that twilight period. And how much stock do you put into that? Let's say you do bump, bump deer out, or, um, you have a pretty good idea. You know, you can tell that a deer has been bedding there still within the frame of preseason. How much do you really, I mean, is that somewhere that they're probably going to stay as season kicks off, as long as they're not being super heavily pressured, is that a preseason finding bedding areas in preseason? That's, is that something that you should kind of go back and look at once the season kicks off or does it generally shift by the time October comes around? Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on when the opener is like some of the States out West have, you know, September 1st or 2nd or even August 31st openers. And of course, in that scenario, the bedding that you find in the summer would carry a lot more weight than it would in a state with an October 1 opener. Usually around the time when the deer will shed their velvet in early September, you'll see some kind of a shift in bedding. And it'll depend. Like sometimes I see pockets of does that don't really change much in terms of where their bedding will stay in the same, you know, thicker areas throughout most of the summer and even into the fall. But those bucks may shift. And that's something too that, you know, in places that I hunt now, I can verify with trail cameras that I have run during the summer. I can see like, well, there's, you know, apart from the occasional nice buck that walks through once every two weeks, really not much there except for does and fawns. But then you have that shift that happens and then they start showing up and then there's that, you know, pre-rod activity. That's when they would, you know, really start to move into some of those areas that uh, they might not be at all in during the, um, the late summer months. So it definitely depends, but that also kind of is a, a strategy that you can employ throughout the season, right? If you, if, if we're making the assumption that you didn't really have a chance to go in and scout postseason when all the, you know, foliage was down and there was no leaves and snow and grass and whatever, um, 
and you're just kind of going in blind at this point, if you're looking at it from early season and you know that your opener is not until October 1st, then I would put a little bit less weight in what you're seeing in terms of betting, at least this time of year. But if you have a keen eye, you can also pick out some other things that might be, you know, good to find still. And those would be things like scrapes. Generally, if you find scrapes close to that heavy betting cover, especially, and they can be really hard to find this time of year because usually the ground does not pot up. But over time, if you see enough scrapes and you take notes and, um, you know, kind of compare one scrape versus another scrape, ones that tend to be good during the season versus ones that tend to be just kind of randomly made. Usually the better scrapes will have good licking branches hanging over the top and they're well-worn. You can look at the licking branch and see that it has a lot of use over the years. And that's something that if you start to keep an eye out for it and you start to look for it, even this time of year, you can oftentimes still find those licking branches. If you're walking in an area and you're on that transition line of bedding and it seems like there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of diversity, and you got that nice little open pocket of woods. And it's like, man, even though there's a bunch of tall grass and ferns and everything this time of year, it's like, I could picture there being a scrape here. And then you look around and sure enough, there's a licking branch. And then that's a place that even if it's only getting, you know, occasional use this time of year by maybe does or fawns passing through, it's a place that definitely could heat up in October, especially toward the second half of the month. Um, so it doesn't always have to be related to bedding or early season food, right? It can be, you can still look for rut type areas. If, if you especially think that the primary focus of your season is going to be hunting during the rut, then I would, you know, shift more of that towards looking toward those things like any scrapes that you could find, or, you know, those nice pinch points. You can obviously take a walk through the woods and see what is going to be good or bad pinch points. And you can find other hunter sign. You can find, you know, set wicks that might still be up there from last season. You can find tree stands that are still up in the woods. Uh, they're a little bit harder to find, obviously, because of the, the foliage that's still up in the trees. But, you know, that's, that's definitely a way that you can really tailor your scouting any time of the year to try and find rut areas. But I definitely do think it's easier, you know, in March than it is in August. So in talking about scrapes, that's one thing I've been curious about. I mean, I know what they are. I know what the purpose is. How Do those kind of stick around all year round? Are those like once a scrape's been made, is that if I have a scrape that I found last year that was obviously pawed out, there was a licking branch, everything looked like it was getting hit. Um, I even went last season, put a camera up. It was on public land. I was like, it gets stolen, it gets stolen. Um, I put it up because I was just curious what was coming in there. Um, is that a spot that I want, like, is that going to continue to be a scrape throughout? Like, will they come back to that spot this year as well? Or is that something you just need to verify with boots on the ground? Most likely, yes. But it's going to be one of those things where if it starts getting more pressure, like if somebody else finds it and they start hunting it, you know, two, three times a week, it's going to not be a good spot anymore. And it really depends too on the context around the scrape because a lot of times, you know, bucks might go in and just lay scrapes and you might walk through the woods and say like early November and kind of look at the landscape of the woods and all the scrapes that are there. And you might walk through in one, any given day and find, you know, 60, 80 scrapes if you put on enough miles, but of those only, you know, a certain handful are going to be the best ones that are used pretty much all year round by does, fawns, young bucks, mature bucks. Um, and usually those are going to be 
on the edges and even kind of, you know, on those crossing areas between overlapping bedding areas, they're going to be in transition lines. They're going to be in areas with really good cover and they're going to be areas that don't get a lot of human intrusion. If you can find scrapes that have well-worn licking branches in areas like that, more often than not, those are going to be, you know, perennial spots where you can go in year in and year out and expect to see good deer activity on. And how would you, cause I've heard that scrapes are, and this may be wrong, but this is one thing I heard scrapes are great to hunt early season. Is that true? Or is like, if I find, cause last season I found, um, a pretty decent scrape line. There was a couple found three or four that you could see. Um, and then there was the one really nice one. Um, how, how would you use that once the season kicks off? So for me in Iowa, it's going to be October 1st. How would you use that scrape to your advantage once, once you're actually in the woods with a bow? I mean, how do you hunt that? So one, one way you could do it, because if it's, we're talking like early, early season, like in other States where you can hunt early September, if you find a scrape that's opened up in proximity to, to early season bedding, it can be really good right now. Like you can hunt it right that day. And when you, what you find is if you have to wait until say early October, those scrapes that you find might still be good. And obviously the closer you get to the bedding, the better, but you might start getting more nocturnal depending on how, you know, what close proximity you are to that bedding. Um, a lot of times you might have, especially some of the older deer, they might wait until it's a little bit after dark or like right kind of at twilight until they leave kind of that little pocket around their bedding and, and get out to some of those scrapes that are a little bit further away. And so in instances like that, one thing you could do, especially if there's a, a scrape line, like I think you kind of alluded to, there's some that were, you know, better, maybe closer to the bedding. And then there's other scrapes for, um, you could, you know, put a camera on some of those scrapes that are more peripheral and just kind of monitor those. And if you're getting deer on those scrapes that are coming in, you know, not too long after dark or even in daylight, then there's a good chance that if you wait for the right conditions and you go in and hunt that better scrape, that's closer to the bedding, you might be able to get a, a good opportunity right then and there. I think the biggest risk with hunting them in early October is just that you go on that scrape. That's maybe a little bit too far outside that bedding pocket and they don't show up in daylight and then you get out of there and then they can smell that you were in there and hunted it. So that, that's probably your biggest risk early season. Um, what I, what I tend to find, and you know, what I learn from talking to other people who have early openers is that, uh, you know, the difference between an early season being October one and September one can be a really big difference in terms of how you, you know, hunt quote unquote early season. Is there any stock in, you hear people say, if you find a scrape pee in it, is that myth? Is that just kind of like a just, you know, people just say it in a joking manner, or is there any truth? Is there anything, is it best if you do find a scrape, is it best to just leave it alone or, sh you know, what, is there any truth behind manipulating that scrape at all? There can be, I think, you know, the best thing from a manipulation standpoint is if whatever's there naturally just doesn't suit you from the ability to make a, a kill on that scrape. Uh, you know, if you have to clear a shooting lane or whatever to be in the right tree, to give you the right cover, to be able to shoot that way, or to be able to work the wind and thermals, right. Then that's kind of more, I would guess, quote unquote better. Or if you just want to spruce it up a bit and add maybe a little bit more of a licking branch 
or something to that effect. Uh, but typically what I find is that if there's, if a scrape that's naturally in the woods is already a good scrape, it's going to be a good scrape regardless of what you do to it. And the deer are going to come back to it just like they were the year before. And I've in the past tried not doing anything to those scrapes and just hanging a camera over them. I've tried peeing them in the before and I've tried using, uh, you know, other scents like, you know, preorbital gland or forehead gland mm-hmm. scent to be able to spray on the licking branch and, uh, you know, maybe even pour, um, urine in the, um, in the actual pot out spot on the ground. But it seems like, and most of this that I've done has been, you know, in the summer months kind of leading up to the season, either trying to, uh, create a, a mock scrape or, you know, again, like freshen one up that I know is going to be there. And once it comes to mid October and then leading in toward the later part of the month, it doesn't seem to matter what I did or didn't do to it. I know a lot of other guys that will, you know, either pee in the scrapes themselves or put scents on. And, and there's other guys that are, you know, pretty adamant about just leaving it, you know, all natural. And I haven't been able to, to really see one thing either be, you know, way better than anything else or, you know, on the flip side, I don't think you're necessarily hurting anything by being in it or using external sense either. And is there any benefit to when you're on public land specifically, um, you had mentioned mock scrapes. Is there any benefit to doing that on public land? Usually the only time that I would consider putting a mock scrape in is if whatever's there naturally isn't giving me what I need to be able to effectively hunt it. So sometimes you'll find those spots where it's like, oh, there should be a scrape in here. You know, this is like the perfect spot for it. It's a perfect little, you know, core area around a a bedding thicket. And there's multiple overlapping things. Like everything just seems to make sense, except you don't find that scrape. It's like, huh, well, you know, this would be a great place to have one. That would be, you know, the point in time where I would consider putting in a mock scrape. Or if whatever's there naturally, it's like, man, I just cannot hunt this. Like the, the tree that I need to be in is, you know, not that great a cover. I'm pretty skyline the thermals are not working great for me to hunt out of that spot but there's this other area you know 60 yards over where if that's where the scrape was i'd be able to hunt it pretty effectively well then i might go put a mock scrape over there so that's really the thing i think for me that determines if i'm just going to leave you know what's naturally there and hunt that versus if i'm going to try to set up a mock scrape and if you are setting up a mock scrape and this is, you know, something where I leverage guys like Troy Pottinger or Steve Shirk, you know, guys who have been doing this for a really long time, making it visually look really appealing. So where a deer can see that there's a scrape there from, you know, a good ways off mm-hmm. from that licking branch. And, and you can even, you know, paw the ground out a little bit, um, even if it's this time of year. And then also that would be like a point in time where having some of those external scents or even peeing the scrape could help at least for that initial um, you know, finding of the mock scrape. What it seems like I find too sometimes is that even if I go out just to hang cameras, that first day after I hang the cameras, I might get like a number of bucks on the cameras and then I might not get anything for another week or so. And then they start moving back around again. And I think some of that is they could have been using those areas right now and then they smelled my intrusion and then they stayed out of it and like moved away for a little bit. But I think another, you know, theory behind that is that you know, maybe they're not going through that trail every day right now, but they smelled that you walk back there and they could smell that you're not an immediate threat there anymore. Cause it was like, you know, eight hours before or whatever, they can tell that that scent is not super fresh, but they're curious. And so they might go follow that. And then they find the spot where you, you know, stood around and, and did that work and hung those cameras and whatnot. So 
I think from that perspective, you know, there's some ability for them to go ahead and find that anyway. And if you did a good job in terms of making it appealing for the deer, both visually and just, you know, giving them the licking branches at the right height and all that kind of stuff, then uh, generally they'll start using it. I have had some that have failed. I've had some where I've tried to put them, you know, 20 yards away from a natural scrape. And I thought I made mine look pretty good, but it was in a better area for me to hunt. And then they would kind of ignore that mock scrape in favor of the natural one. So sometimes it's just a trial and error game. Yeah. So getting back to, um, seasons kicked off when you, I guess it would, it would probably be better for you to explain, like when you're getting to a new piece of land, um, a lot of, a lot of newer hunters or even myself, like I haven't, I don't have the experience yet to like know all the public land around me, like the back of my hand. So a lot of times if I do go, uh, explore a different spot, even three years in, it's a brand new spot. So when you get to a new spot, what are, what are you looking at and what is making you decide, Hey, I want to hang out here, or I think this is going to be a good spot to hunt deer. More specifically, I think most of us focus on hunting bucks versus just, you know, random deer does and everything else. What kind of things are you looking for as you're walking through the woods that kind of indicate this is where I should be. And it, even if it's just today or whatever your plan is for the hunt. I'm just curious, kind of what catches your eye that makes a spot look like something to invest time in? Yes. I think I'll, I'll start more globally and then kind of hone it down. If we're talking, say like, you know, there's a, a public piece that's new. You just have never scouted it before. And you're, you're going into it as a thousand mm-hmm. acres, let's say or 500 or whatever. And you're like, is this a place that I should continue to invest time in learning? Or should I invest more of my time in this other piece of public? Some of that's going to be on the front end e-scouting. And I'll look for things like, does this have everything that a deer is going to need to, to live its life and get old? Does it have really good amount of cover? Is it hard to effectively gun hunt that piece? Cause that can make a big difference too. If it's really easy for people to gun hunt it, then usually deer won't have an opportunity to get as much, you know, have an age structure in that piece of land. Versus if you got an area where it's like, man, they get into this stuff and there's, you know, there's no chance they can just sit there and hide out for that whole nine day season or whatever. I guess your, your seasons are a little bit different in Iowa, but, um, you know, like if you can imagine in Iowa, a place that's hard to deer drive, right. And bonus points in, in my mind. And then also what's the diversity look like? Is there multiple different kinds of cover? Is there, you know, storm damage or logging or, you know, different edges that are naturally occurring within the the land itself um or is it just kind of like a big open monoculture forest i'm gonna usually you know choose the one that has more diversity more edge and better food naturally for the deer throughout the course of the year obviously if there's ag around then they can feed on that during the summer but then you know what are they going to feed on during the fall and winter and if you have areas that have a good you know different levels of forest regeneration and they've got early successional growth and they've got big mature oaks and they've got, uh, you know, some of the, the woodier, you know, brushier shrubby things that they can feed on during the winter from a browse standpoint, then that again is all giving bonus points. So even kind of without knowing what the deer, you know, structure is like there, those are the things that I'll be looking for at a really high level. Number two is something that you figure out during year one, which is what, what is the hunting pressure like? If there's a lot of guys hunting it, then over the course of the year, it's probably going to, you know, have less of a continued 
priority in my mind. And I might start looking for places that have lower hunting pressure. And then the third part of it, which is more of a, you know, year one to two, even like year three type of thing is, you know, what is, what is the actual deer situation like there? And some of that you learn from actually being out there in the woods hunting. Some of that you learn from spending time and seeing big tracks or just, you know, rub scrapes, things like that in general, that that'll key you in on, you know, are there bigger bucks sitting here or is it probably a lot of like, you know, one to three year old deer that are making a lot of the sign and being able to run cameras over the course of, you know, a couple of years, you might be able to find, you know, if you're, if you're after an older deer, if, if you maybe get one picture of a nice buck throughout the course of an entire year and you had a, a number of cameras in good spots, well, that's, you know, you probably are going to be able to find a place that has, you know, maybe two, three, maybe even four um, deer that you'd be happy to shoot. So that all kind of plays into it, but, you know, certainly on the front end, I'm looking for the place where, um, you know, deer can get some age on them and have that diversity of cover. And when you, when you talk about cover, I guess it's going to kind of, it's going to be a regional thing, I'm sure, but what kind of, what kind of things are cover? What are you looking for that you consider good cover for where, where deer might hold? Yeah. In, in a place like, let's say Iowa, place like Iowa, I would look for things that are maybe, I guess, you know, part time a year, which could be like corn. Corn is going to provide them cover during the summer months up until whenever that corn gets cut. So then once the corn is cut, what do they have around it? Is there, you know, places where they can hide and have a similar type of security? CRP would be a, a good example of places where, you know, the deer could find cover. And then what does the forest structure look like? Is it all mature woods? Because if so, mature woods, usually you can see a long ways in, underneath the canopy and there's not as much cover close to the ground. But if you have areas where there's little, you know, logging clear cuts or there's just natural openings where you have more grasses and forbs and weeds that can grow up in the summer and you have, you know, saplings that are, you know, one to three inches in diameter in, in a lot of areas and it's just generally thicker um, to where you feel like you can't look and see, you know, 40, 50 yards into the woods, then that kind of plays into it as well. Um, the cover certainly changes throughout the course of the season this time of year and even in September you have maximum cover the crops are still in all the the leaves are on the trees the weeds and the ferns and the grasses are all knee to waist high and they can find cover just about anywhere but then once all that stuff starts to to brown out and starts to die off what's left Um, and so the places that have the what's left you know those tend to be areas that I would consider to have better cover now you know in a place like central Minnesota or southern Wisconsin, we have more marshy type areas than cattails would provide a similar type of cover or dogwood, um, you know, places where they have that overhead high cover, you know, it could even be like waist high, waist high to head high cover for deer, uh, is very important because they can, they can hide in that stuff pretty easily. So basically when you're looking around, you're kind of putting yourself in the deer's perspective of, could you see me here? I guess you would say, um, basically they're just, they're betting in that stuff with the intent of, I don't want anything to see me. I don't want anything to mess with me. So, yeah. So you're looking for your thicker areas that generally a lot of, of people or predators aren't going into along with that. You talked about hunting other hunters. What could you, so I've heard that a lot 
in terms of like, hey, how do you scout? What should you be looking for? People always seem to say, make sure you look for other hunter sign. Now, I I know you're, you know, we're talking boot tracks, things like that. You had mentioned different scent uh, wicks and things like that. How do you use, if you come in, especially, especially during the season, how do you hunt other hunters and how do you, whatever information you gather from that, how do you, what do you do with that? And um, in terms of forming that into your plan for a hunt? Yeah. So you can find, I mean, the obvious stuff is generally the stuff that I like to find. That'd be like trail cameras that you see in the woods or tree stands or those, you know, scent wicks or, or basically anything physical. Those are nice because you know, like, okay, the guy was here, but sometimes you don't get hunters that leave that kind of stuff. Maybe they're mobile hunting and they're carrying their sticks and their stands or platforms in and out with them every hunt. And then it becomes a little bit trickier because in order to even find the trees that they climb, you have to, you know, see either something that they, you know, dropped out of their pack and missed or, or you see the little, you know, groove marks in the bark from when they use their climbing mm-hmm. sticks to get off the tree. And, you know, that, that can take a very keen eye. And even then it's still not very easy to find. Uh, but you can sometimes get that type of information, at least just generally to give you the right ballpark by talking to guys in the parking lot or even seeing like if you're leaving roughly the same time as they are, um, you know, what direction are they generally heading and what kind of a hunter do they seem like? Do they seem like more of that, uh, that, you know, new school mobile type guy, that that whole, you know, system that's becoming mm-hmm. popular now, or are they more of the pick a spot and sit there all season type of a guy? Um, I don't remember if you guys can use, um, you know, like minerals or anything like that in Iowa, but no, not during season. Okay. Cause like there, there'd be places in like Wisconsin, certain counties that you can bait in and there'll be guys who will, you know, set up more of a semi-permanent spot over a bait pile or a mineral or something like that. Um, and if you can find one of those, it's like, okay, great. I know where that guy's at. And generally speaking, if, uh, if you have a situation like that, it's pretty easy to work around. Because it's like, okay, number one, I know that uh, my best bet is going to be obviously not work, not going where that guy is because, number one, I'm not screwing up anything he's doing. But number two, it's unlikely that a lot of deer are going to be spending a lot of daylight activity in that area regardless. But also I can think about how have the deer adjusted to the fact that his presence is there. You know, is there, is there land where deer might be swinging, you know, a couple hundred yards downwind? Is there good transition lines or bedding down there? And if you're talking about more of the, the mobile hunting type of a guy who's maybe hunting a different spot every time that he goes in and out, he's doing a lot of scouting in the off season. Um, and you can just tell he's generally putting in a lot of more work than I would say the average guy, then that can be, that can be pretty tough, um, to try and, to try and number one, stay, you know, out of their way, so to speak right? Like not accidentally bump into him, just like they would not accidentally bump into you becomes a little Mm -hmm. bit hard because you might be looking for the same type of stuff. Um, but also it becomes really hard to think about how the deer are patterning that type of a guy, because if he's not doing the same thing over and over again, it's going to be tougher for the deer to, to pattern that type of hunter, just like it would be harder for them to pattern you if you were hunting in a a more mobile capacity. So you just kind of have to do your best to to figure out, you know, is this guy bouncing around all over the place or does he generally seem to be in like a certain area of the public land? Uh, that's where a lot of times I like to use places that are bigger acreage. They might attract more hunters, but oftentimes 
guys generally have, you know, pockets that they tend to go into and you can find areas that are generally unpressured and on smaller pieces, it can be kind of tough because it doesn't take much for, you know, one or two guys to go in on like a weekend or something and do, you know, some in-season scouting and kind of, you know, mess things up a little bit. But if you have a smaller piece that maybe there's a little pocket of cover that doesn't look like much that's separated by a Creek, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. there, there might be deer back in there. Maybe that's the, you know, the little spot that is unpressured. So it, it now, can be tough. Do you generally, I mean, is it just case by case or do you, are you generally kind of, I'm trying to take a couple like of the common pieces of advice I've heard that, you know, on you take it at face value and it's like, yeah, that's great. Thanks. But not really understanding. But a lot of, a lot of times you'll hear go deeper than anybody else, go farther back. Do you subscribe to that all the time? Or is that kind of like you were just saying, you just have to, because I mean, there's a lot of times I pull up to a lot of our public land and I'm in Iowa. I know people are hunting it, but I don't run into a lot of hunters. So is it generally the, the, the best practice to, if you're able, go in deeper to those areas that may be on a map, provided everything you talked about earlier and just start there? Or like I said, once you get out of your vehicle and you show up to this land for the first time, I mean, do you go in with the, with like, I'm just going to go into this point X on the map and we're going to start there? Or how do you, how do you handle that type of situation? So if you are in an area where you're generally not running into to other people, even if it's like a bow season versus gun season thing, you're like, I know it's going to get pressure during gun season, but as of right now, it seems like I'm the only guy hunting this, you know, smaller piece. Then generally speaking, it's, it's better to number one, look at it from the lens of not go back to the deepest thing, but go back to the you know most unpressured thing. I think deep and unpressured for a long time have kind of been synonymous, but mm-hmm. now that, that, you know, that narrative of you got to go deeper has gotten so ingrained in modern, you know, hunting content. A lot of guys will be walking past deer to get to the deep spots that they think deer are going to be at. And right. as such, the unpressured stuff ends up being stuff that's either closer to the road or somewhere in the middle. So think about it from that context too, of like, you know, if it is a, a heavily pressured piece, there might be some guys who are already going deep. So think about it more of where the deer are getting unpressured. But if it's a piece of land that you truly don't think there's a whole lot of other hunting pressure right now, I would guard against going toward the deepest, best spots first. I would more like to take the approach of how can I tackle this on, let's say like a 10 day plan. And each time I end up getting a little bit further, further in. Cause if you just go to the deepest spot right away, well, you're just, you're going in and, and going out and you're walking past probably a lot of deer and you're putting your scent trail in all that area versus if you start and you hunt the first, you know, pocket of cover that you think might hold deer one day. And then you move on to the next one and on to the next one. Then systematically you're, you're working your way further and further back into that area, but you're doing so in a way where every time you go in, it's like a fresh sit that you haven't put any of your own scent in there yet. And so in terms of, I I've been told, um, I actually back, I don't know, beginning of last season, I, uh, messaged a pretty pretty big name um, hunter who is known for being very aggressive when they're scouting. What do you consider to be too aggressive or too conservative? Cause that's, I, I I've kind of had a progression. My first year, I know for a fact I was way too conservative. I 
found the first little piece of sign. Maybe it was like a track, a trail, and I just set up in a tree because I'm, like I said, being on public, I, I'm more of a mobile hunter and I'm in a different spot every time, but I would stay back because I didn't understand how close you could get um, to areas where deer might be. And I would end up seeing deer. I'd see them, but they were nowhere near where I could shoot them. Then last year at the beginning of the year, I kind of started the same way. And um, when I had messaged him, he he kind of gave me the advice of, hey, because you're new, what I'm going to tell you is go in there until you start bumping deer. My question off of that too is when you do bump deer, where do they, I mean, obviously you don't know exactly where they go, but generally where are they going and how long is it going to be before that spot's good again? So I tend to say that if for guys that are either newer or if the piece of land that you're hunting is just newer to you, then I would tend to lean more aggressively as well. And and part of that for the new hunter perspective is how are you ever going to know what's too far if you never, if you never break that line? Right. Right. You might be thinking you're ultra aggressive in reality, you're more conservative than you think you are. But if you, if you occasionally are bumping deer, then, you know, and having that experience of bumping those deer means the next time you're going in the woods, you might be thinking of it, thinking about it through a different lens of, huh, this seems really similar to that other scenario that I, I had. I bet, I bet the deer might actually be right in here and I probably can't go too much further. And you're building that experience in more of a rapid succession. And it may hurt you your first year too, in that if you're constantly getting a little bit too far and bumping those deer, you might be making those deer a little bit harder to hunt that season. But by the same token, you're accelerating your, your own growth and experience as a hunter of knowing where to draw the line. And that's really going to help you in year two, three, et cetera. So I would definitely, you know, say that an aggressive mentality is good first. And then you can kind of tailor that to your own experience as you continue to to hunt. Like if I'm going in and I know that I've scouted this, you know, a certain place a, a bunch of times, and I know there's a, a really big deer back there and I have a pretty good idea of where he's betting. Like I'm going to be more conservative generally in that type of scenario, especially if I know that I might be one of the only few guys that's back in that area. I've got all the pre-rut, I've got, you know, all the rut and I can, I can, you know, stay more conservative where it makes sense to, and I can be more aggressive when I have the right conditions to, to be so, um, versus if I'm like, well, I think he might be betting out in this pile of brush and I go out there and check and yeah, sure enough, he was in there, but I just, you know, busted him out and I don't know what that deer's personality is like. I don't know if he's going to come back right away or if he's going to shift his betting a hundred yards to a secondary betting for a week. Um, cause to a certain extent that becomes a little bit more individualistic. You know, a lot of guys will say that the older deer gets, the more likely he is to stay right in that same core area. Um, but I think that depends a lot too on what the cover is like, what the hunting pressure is like, what the deer's personality is like, what his, his, you know, personal experiences over the, you know, three, four five years he's been alive has been. Cause I'll talk to a lot of guys too, that hunt in more bigger woods. And they're like, yeah, uh, if you bump a deer, like he, he might just go to the next ridge over and he'll be three quarters of a mile away and he'll just stay there for a while. Um, but if you have a place where you've only got one, two or three really good pockets of bedding cover, and that's the best, you know, three spots of bedding cover in the whole, the whole area, he might be more likely to come back right away to those. And then it's just a question of, you know, what's the, the daylight movement? How's that been impacted? If you do end up getting too close or busting them, cause that piece is a little bit hard to, 
to determine as well. I mean, generally in the rut, you can get away with a lot, right? But mm-hmm. if it's outside of the rut, let's say it's, you know, early, mid-October and you go in and, and bust that deer up and then you go right back in there and say like, oh, he's, he's going to be right back in there. If you're not close enough to the bed and you, now you put a, a second hunt on there, you know, you're, you're putting more pressure on that deer. So for a guy who's very advanced, he can probably know through experience how to navigate that situation and play the cat and mouse game and figure it out and make it work. But for a guy who's newer, that can be really tough to kind of understand what's going on. And without being able to be really nuanced in how you're picking up sign, it's going to be really close to impossible to tell, like, is he back in that bedding area or not? You know? Yeah. And generally I know this is a, a P for peace of mind for newer guys. When you do bump a deer out, whether it's a buck or a doe, whatever it may be, um, how long do you wait before you go back into that area? Or is it, there's no magic number. Um, I know my first year when I, if I were to bump a deer, um, even last year too, I'm not going to pretend like I know everything on this, but you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, that thing's running 10 miles away and he's never coming back. Typically in, in, in what you've seen, where do they, like, how far will they go? generally and how long do you stay away if you if you bump something out that you really maybe you want to go back to hunt that particular deer or just that spot because you don't have as many spots available to you maybe you don't have as much public land how long do you stay away from that before you kind of try again it's going to depend a lot on the available cover and what other options that they have to go in bed generally it seems like if a deer is comfortable betting in a certain area, you know, he's betting there for a reason and he's got a good reason to stay at least in that same core area. It might not be the same exact bed, but within that core area, um, depends on the wind direction too. If you got the same wind direction the next day and whatnot, but in that scenario, I don't think it necessarily hurts you to just go ahead and, and, you know, leave your stuff in the tree and just hunt it right away the next morning. Um, okay. I mean, there's been enough people who have had success with that bump and dump strategy and that's your freshest piece of intel at that point that it really doesn't hurt. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but there's always the chance that the deer comes right back to that same bed the next day. Always the chance that he might come back in during daylight, or he might be set up over his bed. And even if he comes in at night, that once it gets light out, you can just kind of wait him out, wait for him to get up and start browsing in that bedding area throughout the day. And maybe you get a shot. But, uh, if you, if that scenario doesn't pan out, then, you know, you got to take a step back and think like, you know, where else, what what other bedding areas have I scouted? What else is there on the map? Like where else could he possibly go? What's the wind direction like if it could be wind-based bedding and try and figure out like, man, maybe that's really the best spot for him to be. Like then maybe he'll go back in there and you just gotta, you know, play the time of year to figure out when you're able to go back in. I think generally in that scenario, I would wait for the right set of conditions to make that move back in and give him the hunt on, on the best, you know, I wouldn't go in there again, if it was like a really dicey wind or if, if, you know, you just weren't expecting to have good deer movement that day, I would wait for the conditions to be good and then make that play in and, you know, be ultra, you know, confident in your mind that he's in that bed and you're taking every precaution. You're being really slow, quiet, et cetera, under the assumption that he's there. And all you have to do is get up and, and walk your way. Okay. And just generally, the term core area gets used a lot too. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to put together some, some keywords so that 
newer guys can understand what what people are talking about. What does the core area of a deer generally look like? Uh, more specifically, a buck is that uh, a mile radius? Is that more? Is it less? What have you typically seen that a core area consists of? What I define it as, I guess myself may or may not be the same as what you know a lot of the academics would describe it as, but. I generally think of a core area as the area in and around a buck's, you know, primary bedding. And depending on what the terrain looks like, he might have different, you know, primary beds that he'll use or, you know, three, four or five beds that he uses most often. But generally the the core area is going to be, you know, those beds plus whatever adjacent cover that he feels really comfortable moving in during daylight hours. Because a lot of times you'll see those deer get up and they'll just kind of browse around throughout the course of the day. You know, maybe they're 40 yards from their bed, maybe they're 20, maybe they're 50, and then they go back and lay down. And if you're right on the edge of there, you're, I would say you're, you know, on the edge of that core, buck's core area. Now that scrape that might be 120 yards away, that might be more of like, you know, transitional between like where mm-hmm. the core area is. Like you might not, it's a good chance you might not get that to that during daylight. Maybe it gets right to the edge. It just kind of depends. Um, but if it's an area where he's going to be comfortable adjacent to the bedding moving in daylight, then that's usually what I would consider core area, but the size can vary. Uh, there's, there's some areas where I think that, you know, it's several acres, um, just based on like, if it's a clear cut that he's in his bed right in the middle and on the edge, it's like, he can move a long ways throughout that clear cut and still be in really good cover. Um, and he might not even bed in the same physical spot on the dirt. Every time he might move around within those couple of acres, but still be, within that general area. And I think there's other times where you have that ultra specific isolated spot of cover and he's going to mostly stay in that because that's where he feels most comfortable. When you come across rubs, does that do, does that typically indicate that you were kind of in that bucks area? Um, I know scrapes can be something where, you know, they're traveling around, they're checking you know, who else has been in there and all that stuff. When you find a rub specifically, what kind of information does that give you that you put into your, your formula? I mean, at a basic level, it tells you that a buck moved through there at some point during the day, at some point during the season. So at face value, a rub doesn't really tell you all that much. The height of the rub and some of the characteristics can give you some clues on how big the deer was. Like if you see a rub that's really tall, you know, like you're getting chest level tine marks and and deep gouges, it's like, okay, this is probably a bigger deer that made this rub. If it's a smaller one, it can be tough to tell. But depending on the time of year and when you see it pop up, those can be a little bit bigger indicators. So like if I'm if I see rubs that pop up in mid-September and it's in some of that really, you know, thicker cover, then I know I'm probably, you know, in or around, you know, certain deer's core area. Now you get closer to the rut then, you know, using that to be able to set up on is a little bit more hit and miss. I would generally not use a rub to say this is a good place to set up. But what you might see is you might see that, you know, a buck is leaving rubs on a trail that runs perpendicular to does that go in and out of a certain bedding area. And he's marking those exit trails. And it's like, okay, well, in that scenario, if I can tell by the times, maybe there's one or two big deer back there. It's like, well, this is a big rub. He's probably running that circuit. If it's, you know, getting later in October and they can use that as a piece of the puzzle. And then maybe you look for a place along that, that travel corridor, uh, try and figure out where he might be betting. But then when it comes into like main rut, then it, 
it all kind of goes out the window. I mean, if you can see that there's shavings on top of the leaves and you had, you know, big recent wind that knocked a bunch of leaves down, then you know it was fresh. But again, contextually, you may or may not be able to get a lot of useful information out of it. So that doesn't necessarily, yeah, that's not necessarily a, it's a good thing to say, okay, there's a buck somewhere in here, but it's not something that you're going to spend a lot of time yeah, on. Generally not. Like, well, I'll give an example of, um, you know, this past spring, I found a rub on a, you know, bigger than thigh size tree that had, it was right, it was like right within the context of cover, like right on the transition of a, a place that I know is good bedding. And it had tine marks that were, could only be made by like split, split brow tines. And there's a certain buck back there that had double split brow tines. I'm like, okay, well, I know that that buck probably made that rub. And so when you would take that piece of information and combine it contextually with various trail camera pictures that you had over the course of the season, that gives you one more piece of the puzzle to figure out like where that deer may have had his, you know, full range within the context of that overall land. Cause if you hunt big enough properties, then you might be able to find land that's big enough where the deer's basically living 95% of his full life within the context of that public. Smaller pieces, obviously, that's not necessarily true. Right. Um, but it can give you little pieces of the puzzle like that. Well, I think that's uh, a ton of information for people to digest. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited to kind of take some of the things you've talked about and put it into strategy going into the season. Because I know last year and even going into this year, things that I've learned from the the previous years, I feel better about knowing what I'm doing in the woods, knowing what I'm looking for, but it's, it, it's still when you're new, even when you find sign and the things you're talking about, you're just not really sure what to do with it. So I think, I think this has answered a, a lot of questions for me. Um, hopefully has answered a lot of questions for a lot of newer guys and giving you guys at least at the very least a starting point of what to be looking for on maps, what to be looking for when you're in the woods. And then I'm sure a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to, and I'm sure Garrett, you'll agree with this, spending time in the woods. Um, like I said, on the last one, nothing replaces woodsmanship. Nothing is going to replace experience, but hopefully some of the things that Garrett talked about today can give you a little bit of a heads up on things as you're gaining new, new experiences to take into the season. So Garrett, let everybody know where they can find you particularly, because I, I find you to be an incredible resource um, and not just for new guys either. I mean, you, you cover such a wide range of, of topics that you're just very, your explanations on things are great. Your videos are great. I've, like I said, a lot of the things that I've seen from you have influenced the way that I hunt now. Um, so let everyone know, everyone know where they can come find you. Yeah. So the, the best two places I would say to, to look for some of the content that I put out would be on my YouTube channel, which is DIY Sportsman. And usually when I'm putting videos up there, it's more infrequent, but it's usually a more polished product. And then I post a fair amount on Instagram as well, which is DIY underscore sportsman. Awesome guys. Definitely go check him out. Um, especially, especially newer guys. You're going to, you're going to gain a lot of, uh, a lot of knowledge from him. So if you guys found value in this show, I appreciate all you guys listening. Please head over to wherever you're listening to this podcast 
Um, make sure to subscribe and follow. We've got a lot of good guests coming out and um, I don't want you guys to miss any of that. Head on over to Ant- at Antler Feather Co. on Instagram and YouTube. Uh, we're also out there. And Garrett, I appreciate all of your time, all of your knowledge. Guys, we're going to catch you next week on the Antler and Feather Co. podcast. You are listening to the Antler and Feather Co. podcast. 